This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Are you looking to plant trees as part of your own land regeneration project? If your project is located anywhere in Europe, you can get all the trees that you want to plant, as well as a group of volunteers to help you get them in the ground, absolutely free. I've teamed up with the team at Life Terra to help them reach their goal of growing one tree for every citizen in Europe in the next couple of years. That's 500 million trees, and it's a really ambitious goal and we need your help. So whether you're aiming for reforestation, planning an orchard business, adding perennial alleys or hedges to your farm, or are just inspired to plant a food forest in your backyard, we can help you make your project happen with free trees and planting support. On top of that, I'll also offer a free project consultation to help get you started with a good plan and to understand how this process works. Just fill out the information through the link on our website or in the bio on our Instagram account, and let's get planting. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode in this series on tree planting and agroforestry. Now there are so many interesting perspectives to approach this topic from and today we're going to hear from two people who turned a personal love of plants into a thriving botanical garden and nursery. Now Allison Levy and Scott Serrano started creating a botanical garden in their backyard 22 years ago by planting native trees, shrubs, perennials, and unusual edibles. Soon after, they became interested in bog plants and hardy cacti and woodland species and non-native trees as well. And together, they fenced in three acres. They made tags to identify the space that they had and recorded what they planted over the past decade with the intention of one day becoming a public garden and an educational resource. So jump to today, and the Hortus Arboretum and Botanical Garden boast an amazing collection of both native and exotic species. They also propagate rare and unusual plants from their collection to sell to help spread plant diversity around. Now in all of this variety, Allison and Scott have discovered a wide range of fruit and nut species that can thrive in their cold New York climate. And that's exactly what we're going to be focused on in this interview. Their new book, appropriately titled Cold Hardy Fruits and Nuts, is a one-stop compendium to the most productive, edible fruit and nut-bearing crops that push the boundaries of what can survive winters in cold-temperate growing regions. Now, while most nurseries and guidebooks feature plants that are riddled with pest problems, like apples and peaches, Allison and Scott focus on both common and unfamiliar fruits that have few, if any, pest or disease problems and an overall higher level of resilience. In this interview, we cover a wide range of information from the unique and hardy plants that do well in cold temperate climates themselves, but also their amazing journey of discovering them. We also talk about a lot of practical plant care techniques, design and placement considerations, and then we get going into the world of plant nurseries and all their discoveries about propagation and managing even the business side. Now, this was such a fun discussion, and I'm already looking forward to the next time that I can speak with Allison and Scott. So if you're left at any point during this interview with more questions, just be sure to reach out to me so that I can get them answered for you the next time that I get them on this show. And with that out of the way, I'll hand things over now to Allison Levy and Scott Serrano. Allison and Scott, thanks so much for taking time to be here. I'm really curious to know how you got started from a what seems like a a one acre hobby garden and a plant collection into what is now an eight acre botanical garden and a nursery. What's the evolution of that? You want me to take that? Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so thank you for having us on and wanting to learn a little bit more about what we're doing and our backstory. So uh, I'll try and be succinct, but it's a little bit rambling. Uh, we moved to the Hudson Valley from San Francisco about 23 years ago. And as we like to say, when we lived in San Francisco, we were very close to what is uh, what was then called the Strybring Arboretum. It's now the Strybring Botanical Garden. So we used that as a playground backyard area because we had a small child. So we spent a lot of time there. And we didn't have a yard. And we didn't have a new yard. It was a tip. Well, it wasn't a typical San Francisco situation. Some places have yards, but it was an apartment. But we were super fortunate. And um, when we uh, essentially moved here in 1999, we had a house that was falling apart and three acres of land. And I think immediately our interest was because we had maybe 95% lawn, the rest 5% were like boxwoods and forsythia. And Scott and I quickly were like, okay, we wanted to start planting. Um, and Scott was very clear, he wanted to start planting at least berry bushes, but we also are visual artists. We both work currently in what loosely called botanical art, but at, back then Scott was, doing lots of artworks based on insects. So he began planting um, plants that were of, that would attract a certain type of moth or caterpillar or whatever he was studying at the time. And then I was looking for plants that had interesting seed pods, interesting flower petals. And so we continued doing that among putting in some you know, we put in a mulberry and peaches, things that we were aware about. And then pretty soon the obsession just started to grow in the sense that we planted out as much as we thought we could on this three acre site that had a lot of um, shade from some existing large trees. And about two years into living here, we were, we learned that a one acre parcel that we weren't fully using our three acres of land and that we, there was an additional about an acre of land that was in what we would call back then full sun but we know better now it was more um somewhere between anywhere from six to ten hours of light but it was so much better so we were like thrilled to have a whole nother area to start just putting in even more fruit trees and there became a point in time very shortly after where my story is that I felt Scott and I were putting in the same plants and we were a young family. We didn't have any money. I said, we're artists. And it was just like, Scott, we got to, we can't put the same thing in. We got to really think about what we're doing. And that became kind of the beginning of being super conscious about planting for diversity. So we might be interested in putting salvias, but let's not put the same salvia in. Let's look for all the different species. And then that kind of evolved into expanding what we knew about with fruiting trees. So in that garden, we started experimenting and putting in plants like medlar, shipova. We did pawpaws, persimmons. And we just read as much as we could. And we did a lot of, um, you know, killing things because not fully knowing what a plant needed, not fully knowing about 
what that site was. So that site had a lot of clay in it and it took us a little while to figure out, oh, okay, persimmons don't mind that, but medlar does or shipova, like it was a lot of just figuring things out. And then over time, um, we filled that area up and kind of fast forwarding a little bit, but in 2009, a parcel across the road from where we are uh, became available. And we asked the owner, would they be willing to split it up? It was a large, it was about 18 acres. And again, we didn't have a lot of money, but I actually had a big art sale. We put a deposit down and we slowly began to plan how to take care of what was a, you know, um, a young forested area. And by that, we brought, we brought in a lumberjack. He came in, we marked trees. He brought all the lumber away, but he left a mess like all the crowns, it was a mess. But because we, at this point, we had been planting for a while, 10 years, I guess, we knew it was best to get plants in the ground now. And we'll worry about the cleanup once we get the plants that we want in. And then we were not going to put them in just willy nilly, so to speak. We decided let's have a design and plan. And that's where we, I would say it's the most, now all the gardens are becoming more organized, but in the beginning that became in 2009, okay, let's have a nut grove. Let's have a prunus area. This is where the greenhouse will be. Oh, let's have a native section, a China section. So that was really like the, to condense how you condense 23 years. That was really the start. And then last year we were lucky enough I say lucky enough because we uh, thwarted a building project that would have put a couple more houses right against the Arboretum. So we were able to purchase 10 acres of land. So we're currently 21 acres, five acres we think are really six. full, five to six are fully cultivated um, and continue to be. And, and she's skipping at one point oh, in the sorry. middle of all of that, I, I think I, it was either the Brooklyn Botanical Garden or the New York Botanical Garden. I, we went there and I stood in the middle of that and said, oh, this is where I want a house. I want a house dropped here, except I would have fruit trees mixed with all of this so I could pick fruit off it at the same time. And then I say, and so that's basically what we did. We did the opposite. We took a house and we built an arboretum around it and we got, um, accreditation with the Morton Arboretum Registry, there's a certain amount of paperwork you fill out and you list online all of the plants you grow so that arboretums from around the world can check on it. And we began to systematically label our plants because we sort of stole the Arnold Arboretum's method of how they label. I looked at their plant labels and I attempted to kind of reproduce in, in a way that we could afford. And I experimented with hand stamping and we eventually settled on a dog tag maker, a machine that hand stamps out dog tags so that you have six or seven rows of texts where you could say everything you know about a tree. And then the most, and then we began to organize our, our plants systematically and try to build a kind of a conscious collection. Mm -hmm. I always say the difference between a nice garden and an arboretum is kind of an attempt to kind of represent biodiversity and to try to expand and to do it systematically. And then it's that, how it's presented to the public who comes to visit your garden is what makes it an arboretum. So 
the, the, the last biggest iteration of that is somebody who was visiting our garden said, I bet I could write you a grant and get you a grant. What do you want a grant for? And we said, educational signs. So when people come here, they can see things because we have endangered species and people don't know they're that. So we got a major financial grant from the Stanley Smith Horticultural um, Endowment um, yes, last year. And um, we got, we built 250 educational signs. So, oh, and yeah. yes, and this morning, a truck just pulled up in front of our house and said, I have a delivery from a sign making company. We finally got the big ones, which are four foot by two foot full color signs that for each section, there's one for the American collection, there's one for the Chinese collection, there's one for Magnolia, so people can see reproductions of what the flowers look like. So if they come here when magnolias are not flowering, they can say, oh, that's what the flowers on that tree look like. And um, that's what that species look like. So that's what it literally just this morning just arrived our truck with our sign, our last sign. So exciting. Oh, wow, that's so exciting. exciting. What yeah. good timing. Yes, well, look, yes. there's one thing that you said in the iteration of all of this is that the one thing you would have changed about having planted your house right in the middle of an arboretum was that you wanted to have fruit trees in there. And that yes, really yeah. comes to the book that you've recently put out, which is really specific to the growing zones that you have and the challenges of cultivating fruit and nut trees in a cold climate. So let's start from the beginning and figure out what you define as a cold climate, because I'm betting this is based on hardiness zones, right? Yeah. Yeah. And hardiness can be a lot of different things. It's uh, obviously how cold it is, but also is how, how your winter is. If you get cold, but you have two feet of snow on the ground, the roots of trees are protected because a lot of people don't know that snow is, Great insulator. is an insulator because the ground tends to be median temperature about 55-ish degrees, whatever it is. And the layer between the snow and your ground warms up slightly from decaying plant, decaying plant material, rotting, releasing gases. That's why voles and field mice live under there and tunnel around. That creates a slight warm blanket thrown over. So that's another factor. It's not just how cold it is, it's what kind of winter you have. So when you have below zero temperatures, you want snow on the ground. When there's no snow on the ground, it's much more difficult to grow things. There are areas like us that when more desert-like conditions but are like us. And so when they go through below zero, they don't have any snow insulation. So they have much less options um, in terms of, of that. But then it's also sometimes like this winter for the first month, month and a half, we were still planting outside almost until January. But then we had an ice storm where there was a half an inch to an inch of ice coating all the trees for the first time in like 50 years. Over 50 years, and we, devastating. And we lost thousands of trees in the forest. They broke and fell down. And so that one event was worse than like all the last 20 years we've grown, did more damage to things. Luckily, our collection was okay, but the trees in the forest in our, our area suffered major amounts of damage. And oh, wow. cold hardiness is a stretchy word. Yeah. So we're already getting we've we've always gotten comments like cold hardy where you are. I'm in zone three. Let's talk about what cold is. And it's true. It is a relative word, yeah. just like we're a little bit envious for people who are in zone seven because the what they can grow or, you know, seven B. 
it, the, the palate seems to open up. But at the same time, there's, you know, plenty of plants that prefer to have um, more coldness. Um, maple trees would be one, one example that as climate change continues, whether you believe in it or not, it's happening. Um, we know just from our time here that our USDA um, zonal hardiness has changed because every 10 years it gets reevaluated. So when we moved here, we were, a, I believe, a solid five. And now we're, we, you know, the temps have raged to a zone six. So we do try and be mindful about what's what we call cold hardy. With this book initially, our focus first was on low maintenance plants. So that is really like before a title was thought up, we wanted to share with people our experiences over two decades of growing a variety of different plants. And we grow more than 50, obviously, in our garden, but the, we, we chose what we thought a combination of some very popular ones that are in the food forest permaculture world, some ones people haven't heard about, uh, chocolate berry and um, maybe even sarsaparilla. Um, so that was really our focus. And a lot of people don't realize that every plant that we talk about, we've been growing here. Um, the cold hardy part really was when you looked at the plants that we chose, most of those plants obviously fit within that, that loose term of what is cold hardy. So granted, if you're living a little bit more north of us, maybe 40 of these plants would work in your environment. If you're living a little bit more in a warmer climate, probably all of the plants might work for you. Yeah, except like, for instance, as you get warmer, yeah. gooseberries mm -hmm. start to not like it. They, they want not only rain, but they want cool climate. Even gooseberries for us, they don't like the hot, humid part yeah. of summer when it's 90 degrees. They drop their leaves and go to sleep, but then they come back. But then they come back the next year and they fruit. But they, but they don't like like on the deep south. They like England, the, the summers in England, and they like Scandinavia. But they'll survive here if you kind of mulch them a little and protect them. Yeah, my, my way of looking at it is um, no spray crops. Almost right. everything in our book does not have to be sprayed. You know, that's why there aren't peaches and apples in our book, because peaches and apples are very, very difficult. In our area. In, in our area, in our they area. get really bad problems. And so by balancing the low maintenance aspects and the cold hardy aspects, there is still the option of creating microclimates or finding microclimates on your space too. And I know that you've leveraged those and talked a little about them in the book. What do you have to say about how you can, first of all, identify microclimates and what it might let you do outside of what's possible in the larger area of your land? Mm. You can answer. Um, because um, we're, we're pretty much gaga to try anything, anything that zone seven, um, I, we experiment with. Like I, I put wasabi outside and mulched it and we've had wasabi survive and i keep wondering is it really wasabi it, it keeps making it through the winter and it keeps blooming 
you know, but it was sold to us as wasabi and it seems to be wasabi. But that could be like a little protected a of, yeah. or it's a protected yeah. area where if we planted it. Uh, you know, and, and that got below zero this year and, and the plants are still alive that I put in the ground. So, and in the greenhouse, we grow things you're not supposed to grow like Asian persimmons. Asian persimmons cannot survive here. American persimmons can, but Asian ones can't. So, I have a special way of pruning an Asian persimmon tree and we got like 15 Asian uh, Fuyu persimmons last year ripened inside the greenhouse. And people say that cannot be grown in our environment. Um, I, we have a lot of things that we experiment with. You know, the simple, easiest, cheapest, fastest thing to do is to put a bucket over something. To create a microclimate. We yeah, have, yeah, we have Matia sure. poppy because we live next to the San Francisco Arboretum, there's a poppy that grows eight foot tall. It's a shrub. It's the only, it's called Romney. It's the only member of the poppy family that's a shrub. And in, in the Baja Desert, it's a weed. It, it forms these giant stands. And we love that plant. It's very beautiful. So if you cut that plant to the ground and put a bucket over it, it survives. And our plants, they don't get eight feet, but they get six feet and they get completely covered with flowers. So that's a success. For us, it survives as a perennial, but, no, but not as a standing bush, but we get hundreds of flowers. So it's, it means it can survive this environment. I would think also um, in terms of specifically answering your question about you know, creating microclimates and, and part of it is you, you know, because we do a lot of consultations as well, it's time, right? It's that time at, that a lot of us don't feel we have in terms of looking at your property, noticing, really seeing what's growing in a particular area, um, you know, and, and also the more you plant, really the more microclimates you are creating depending on the height of that plant, how densely planted something is. And just like people, some plants are just hardier, stockier than others, right? So, you know, maybe the wasabi Scott's talking about is perhaps in a slightly protected area, perhaps it's just a stockier, hardier specimen because it really is, it's like a zone eight plant or whatever. Um, so I would say, you know, Specifically, it's just seeing your environment and what you have and noticing, is that a very open, windy site? Are you sloped? You know, are there big trees around? I think Yeah, there are, be... there are parts of our land. There's a low area by a forest covering that we have. And, and when you're standing there, it's not only because you're in shade, but you can tell because it's right up from a swamp. It's five degrees colder down there. It feels like that's the coldest part of our property, not only because you're in shade, but I think the swamp, the cold sits at the bottom of our land. And it's and because there's a, a whole thing that happens with the swamp and the water standing there. You feel you're in a cold area down there. I would also say one last thing about that. For those who live in environments where there's snow, so snow actually is a great indicator to show you what areas warm up first first yeah. right so like i'm still surprised there's some areas that immediately after we had six inches of snow like within a day with some sun where the, the snow was gone but there's some areas that there's still a layer of snow and we've had 60 degrees like wow so that is really my full shaded cooler cold, site right cold like soil. i might yeah. not want to plant a, a tree there that doesn't 
require or really thrive in that type of condition. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, there's no substitute for living with a, a landscape and yeah. watching trees time. change. That's that time thing. Time. Yeah, there really isn't. Yeah, that that really fits to what I've been learning too about this new property that I'm getting ready to move into. I haven't gotten the chance to live there yet, but we try and go back every time that we can and see it in different seasons. And exactly like what you were saying about the snow, we've observed with the frost because it isn't a microclimate like we were talking about just before this and down in the basin where the river is and closer to the side where the mountain kind of shades out the site on the, the south end of the property. Uh, you can see frost accumulate there during the winter almost as much as like a layer of thin snow and it doesn't go away during the day. Whereas the hill on the other side, which is exposed to the southern sun, there's hardly ever any frost there at all. And there could be a difference of five degrees Celsius, uh, yeah. you know, just in maybe, I don't know, 50 meters of walking okay. distance. It's crazy how, how much of a difference yeah. that Amazing, makes right? aspect, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. We have friends who have a property on the hill. Not far. Not far from us. And he said that he went because he's growing barley for because he's going to make his own alcohol. He wants to do brewing and distilling. And he found zonal maps by Cornell, Cornell Agriculture that, that measure almost in feet how cold it is. And he said if he stood outside his door, it's, it's zone six. But if he walks 500 feet away and goes to the base of a mountain, it literally goes to zone five. It's 10 degrees colder and there's a wow. whole series of crops that won't survive. Within a five minute walk, because the bottom of the hill where he lives, cold sits there. And as you walk away from the hill, and there's literally a point of 100 feet or 200 feet where you suddenly hit the warm spot. I mean, yeah, it can be, you never know sometimes in your property, there's radical changes. Yeah, when I move there, I'm going to put thermometers everywhere and see if I can <laughs> find where those spots are after observing the frost. Okay, so beyond just the cold hardiness aspect, there are so many other factors that will cause your plants to succeed or to have troubles. And it goes much beyond those temperature ranges and into aspects of sun, the types of soil that they're in. What are the main factors that you ask people to consider when they're looking into some of the fruit trees that are in this book? Watering their plants. Quite frankly, people put stuff in the ground and, and for the first season, they should really get an inch of water a week. And I spoil my plants and do more. You want them to grow aggressively and well into the soil the first year. After that, they become much more resilient. The bigger the root system, the, the hardier they're going to be, the, the more robust they're going to be. And, uh, you know, literally people don't consider that. Um, well, they figure, you know, the rain that we get during the spring, that's good. And it is good, especially if you've just planted. But then what happens is, you know, you don't get into the habit of taking care of it. And summer rolls along. And then you have a period of time where there's drought. And, oh, okay, let me go water that. And it's already, you know, because at this point, maybe, you know, the leaves are showing signs of, you um, they're wilting or yellowing and, and, you know, some plants are resilient enough, but when they're young, it's almost like, it's like you would never leave, put an infant or a toddler out there on their own without 
some sort of protection or some, you know, so, and, and, you know, we're a little bit different, Oliver, because we are, um, we are a private garden that is um, disguised as a public garden, meaning we open our gardens um, for the public to come. We want to be a source of inspiration as well as be an educational resource to turn people on to planting outside the box. Um, so that's really important. And I think even for people who get a tree or two, they're so surprised that they have to continue watering for a, at least a full year. And it's possible even into the next season if the spring is a dry one. So I would concur with Scott about the, um, the watering aspect. And the second biggest thing is, you know, um, would be just really knowing what that plant likes. And sometimes you don't know that until the plant has died. And so we, you know, our little adage has been like, okay, you've killed it once, you've killed it twice, the third time now, shame on you if you haven't figured it out because this plant has showed you, okay, it doesn't like, like we use this, this example of uh, Shizandra vine, which is in our book that we cover really interesting. It's also called five flavor berry. It is truly one of those plants that would like to be in the shade. But when you read about it, it doesn't, uh, you know, depending on what, what you're reading. And a lot of times what we found just in our research for the book is that the same things are regurgitated over and over. And so one of my little adage was, was like, if you don't grow it, how do you know it? So Scott, transplanted it twice or once no it was in full sunlight full sun, right and it got fried despite yeah. being watered constantly and heavily mulched so we put it in a lot of sun but not full sun like four or five hours mm -hmm. enough to and then it boomed and mm -hmm. it did really well yeah so morning it, sun it does not yeah. you know it survived being scorched for two years you could just tell it was not happy not all day sun it did really well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so and then I, I would say, then the next thing is grass. Yeah. People don't understand grass secretes a chemical which is toxic to trees. It, it basically, that's how meadows stay meadows. They poison the seedlings around them and, and they outcompete it by their roots strangling it. So if you let thick grass grow up to the trunks of your trees and often the roots on grass will grow down six, 10, 12 inches, inches literally yeah, depending on the so grass, if there's an right? inch of rain around your tree and that tree is surrounded by grass the grass is getting all of the moisture not your tree so weeding and keeping the trunks cleared at least for a few years till they get big is a big shot in the arm to helping trees then when all when you put mulch down or you put compost down the trees getting it not the grass and when it rains the trees getting all the rain um, and then I think once trees are two or three years old, they're not so finicky, right. but when they're young, they they struggle. Mm -hmm. And that depends on the tree, yeah. of course. Some, some, some are, trees are like iron. They just don't, they care, don't care what you do. You know, uh, you know, we have American persimmons growing in pretty lousy clay soil and they're just thriving and they never get diseases. They've only got one tiny leaf thing that's never been a problem. Just in year after year, they grow fine and they and they grow when it's a little too dry and they look a little wilted, but they, they do fine and the crops still come in. And when there are times when it rains far too much, they can sit in kind of heavy clay mm -hmm. soil. There's some things that are just more adaptable. Yeah. 
And I found that information about the plants in this book to be uh, really, really helpful, especially for people who are trying out new plants for the first time, knowing how much maintenance they're going to put into them is, is essential. Uh, and I've worked with planting operations and designs for clients and helping them put in uh, perennial systems. And that's one of the first things that I really get people who are new to managing plants to think about is how available are you going to be to actually look after these and maintain them because it's not just a matter of putting them in the ground. So that, that information is really useful. And I'm wondering then how did you come up with some of the other criteria for the plants that you included here? Because like you mentioned, 50 is a very, very small portion of the things that you've tried to grow over time. And I'm sure others that you've had great success with, what was the main impetus for these 50 that you selected? Well, we actually were going to do 75, and we were going to put the, <laughs> divide the book between um, subtropical plants that are kept as house plants, vegetables that are perennial, and the fruit. And an editor and herbs, and yeah, herbs. and herbs. Uh, Unusual said, stuff. Said, why don't you break it into two books? It'll be easier for you because it's your first book. The first book will be fruit, and the second book will be perennial um, herbs and and vegetables. And then a thing that I'm obsessed with is house plants that actually from subtropical regions that actually produce fruit, because there's not really ever been a book written about that for people who are keeping house plants that are literally tropical, like citrus and stuff. So, or for people who keep rubber plants or pothos and just maybe swapping out for a food plant, I, I was I would say the main one of the main criteria is the yum factor, right? Like the the eating factor. Yeah. Like, are you so, like when when we're brought in consults and people want fruit trees or you know whatever kind of food that they're putting in, it's always like. Well, you, you want to put in things that you're actually going to eat, but my, my advice is also add one thing that you have no idea about that you're curious and put it in. Now, that's a harder sell for someone who be small backyard garden and doesn't space to put in five or six things. So the yum factor was really important because when we were thinking about this book, because experience with working with um, all level of gardeners, experienced gardeners, people who are, you know, who like the idea of gardening, but don't garden, that it was, you really want to put in something that you're going to want to take care of because you're going to want to go out and harvest that food some point. So that, that probably was yeah. the other major thing. And another thing to me is bang for the buck. See, like a, a pawpaw tree, you have to wait like eight to 10 to 12 years for. Right. But a good blackberry bush will produce fruit within one or two years. Right. And a dead ripe blackberry, see that most people, there's a lot of people who come to our garden and eat a blackberry from a supermarket and think they're eating a blackberry. And what they're getting is an industrial product that is just black that has juice in it, but there's no flavor. Anyone who's walked into the woods and had a dead ripe blackberry, it's it's equal to almost any of the great fruit of the world. And by that, I mean, it should almost disintegrate and fall apart in your fingers and get messy. It's so full of sugar, it's almost fermented. And that's why even the cold parts of the world have extraordinary good fruit if they're, if they're wild forests. Even Siberia, even Alaska, Alaska has cloudberries, which are supposed to, I've never had them, but people have told me fresh cloudberries are supposed to taste like um, 
baked apple pie, like a cross between a baked apple pie and, and a raspberry. They're eaten by the indigenous tribes and people are kind of starting to breed with them in Northern places, but they're supposed to be incredible. You know, it's hard to believe even in places that are like tundra where there's almost nothing that will grow has mm. great wild fruit still. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, the other part, this one kind of came uh, really organically, excuse the pun, but it, it's true because Scott and I were working separately um, when we did the book and how we researched and, and really fed off of each other's writings. And one of the things from reading a lot of books from the pomological writers of the turn of the century, there were some really funny comments about the fruiting plants. And so the more we got into it, it almost became like, let's search out the great quote about this fruit, which we know now is not necessarily true after tasting it or eating it or what was thought of. So that kind of that opening quote that we start with and the, the kind of led to the background in history. Um, and we really envisioned when we wrote the book that we wanted it to appeal to a whole range of people. So we wanted the pictures to kind of take you in and get you excited and, and see things that maybe you don't normally see aren't shown in a book, whether it's like the male flowers of a wa black walnut plant. Um, and then I think from there, uh, it, yeah, those were like the, yeah, yeah those were the, the fun, like meaty things. And we learned a lot. And we also learned, I said it just a little while ago, but it's the same things are said over and over. It's the same two sentences that, oh, he said that, but then that person said it, that person, but when you trace it back, it's really was said in the, you know, 1890s or 1920, it's very fascinating. Yeah, I mean, the whole history of gathering fruit, like, like for instance, with jujube, Sisyphus jujuba, Americans have gotten that because in, in China, they've been growing that plant for thousands of years. years. There are literally hundreds and if not thousands of cultivars and Frank Meyer, collected jujubes like a 1916 and introduced them into experiment stations in the United States. So that's what Americans have had is jujubes. Well, there's thousands of choices. So about 10 years ago, uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not butchering her name, a professor at the at New Mexico University named Xingu Yao, Professor Yao, she's Chinese American and she's gone through the Cornell as an, a formally educated. So she realized that, that New Mexico would be a great climate because it's slightly dry. Jujubes will do well in dry. They will do well where you are too, by the way. So she imported, she called because she can speak Chinese. She called people all over in China and said, if you were planting a jujube, what one would you plant? And she got a whole list of new cultivars. So they imported through the US Department of Agriculture, like 50 new varieties. And they and once they were cleared, they were grafted. So she they have a whole test plot test, with a yeah. whole new group of jujubes that have never been tried. And they're being marketed as Amera Amera Zhao, like American Zhao. Zhao is the Chinese word for jujube. And jujubes are really interesting, really, really great. Um, so it's they get it's experimenting and trying things and seeing what works. And I would also then add to that that one of the things that it should come to no surprise, but was still surprising, was that the amount of cultivars and varieties 
over time has shrunk, right? Yeah. So we know, yeah. most people know that about apples, right? Like thousands and thousands of different varieties. But people, uh, people don't realize it. Like when we talk about even just something generic like a banana, we're all eating the same one variety for most of us, at least in the West, you know, in this climate. And the true, it's still true, even though that we're covered a wide range of plants, many that people are, might not have ever tasted, like let's say a gooseberry, there's there, the number of cultivars that are currently available. And I guess it's geographic, maybe in England, the variety that is available to the consumers, many more than it is in upstate New York. But, you know, it, it's amazing how it, it's shrunk so much. And I think us as, as growers and people who are interested in growing food, we, we need to add, we need to kind of start demanding are the, the middle ground people who are uh, propagating and planting to, to um, start growing these, but you won't get that until people start tasting that particular. This is where growing fruit becomes political. Yeah. You realize supermarkets have wiped out cultivars. Anything that could not be shipped, anything which would not fit into packages was gotten rid of. So the whole biodiversity of life was basically wiped, wiped out a lot of it. There's a man named U.P. Hedrick, who is the king of pomology writers. He was head of Cornell from the end of the 19th century into the 20s and 30s. So what he realized is there's never been definitive books on growing fruit. So he took plums and he calculated every one that had ever been written. He took a photograph, hand, hand colored, they hand colored a plate, and he did like a three page report on the plum. I have that book, there's 1600 plums in that book. Each one is rated for texture and flavor. And then he went to apples. And I think there's 20, over 20,000 apples. There's a double volume set, each is about 800 pages. And then he went to pears and then he went to plums. That one writer is wrote, wrote millions and millions of pages. And when you read his book, you realize what's been lost, like the, that and you there this his book on peaches and he talks about all the peach orchards being tore up because of diseases he describes a whole group of peaches and he, and he's tasted pretty much he tasted pretty much everything that was ever grown and he describes a whole group of peaches where they taste like they've been soaked in honey overnight and if he said it i believe it and there's a whole description of those peaches so it's it's totally fascinating. There's an entire universe and a lot of 90% of that's gone, it's unfortunately. Lost, yeah. um, I'm so glad you guys brought up that aspect of this. And it's one of the things that have gotten me interested in this from the beginning. And I mean, I didn't quite come to it through reading or through a political aspect, but when I began to travel on my own, realizing that the varieties of, let's say, like you mentioned, uh, bananas or avocados, especially, uh, are really the only ones that you get to try because they are, you know, easy to ship. They've got a, a hard skin um, and because they have commercialized them some way. But when I lived in Guatemala and tried many different types of bananas and avocados that they continue to propagate from seed, which, you know, they're not all great, but the ones that are good are far beyond what you can find in a store. And, you know, the, the things that I've tried in South Asia and Africa and uh, Australasia, it's just, it, it really 
brings home the idea that we are missing out and that biodiversity loss is not this faraway thing that only affects these wild zones, which are starting to disappear. It's affecting our palate. It's affecting our diet. It's something that we're all connected to. And it's one of the reasons why I was so excited to see some new varieties that you highlight in the book that are really quite unknown. And, you know, even in my travels, I've tried so many different fruits and have made a, an effort to go and try things that I've never seen. I had never heard of Akibia or Che or Himalayan chocolate berry, which you said has another more common name in the, the European side. Where did you find all of these amazing plants and what was the process of uncovering them? I, I would imagine there's some detective work involved. Yes. Or ordering from or reading, ordering from plant catalogs all over the United I, States. I would just jump on that and say, um, so when we first started, many of the really great uh, plant nurseries, some that are no longer with us, you know, their stuff was old school catalogs. So it wasn't internet, um, which has its place too, fabulous, because you have access to a lot more places, but it allowed Scott and I at least to really read and learn and then compare notes from different catalogs. So I think it started off slowly as things should, um, you know, like Scott would read something and be like, oh, let's try this. And I might read something and say, well, what about this? And so, and before you know it, the, that this ended up being 10 plants at one time that we would start. And sometimes you wait 14 years and try something and spit it out and said, I waited 14 <laughs> years for that. It's horrendous. It's true. That's and true. sometimes you taste something and you said, oh my God, I can't believe right. how that's incredible. Right. Um, you know, uh, like, like Che, Che was that way. Che is really fascinating. I, when people say, you know, mandarin melon berry, it's sort of like having a, a slice of summer watermelon with maybe combined with fig. And Allison gets lychee from that. There's a com kind of a, a sweet, some people might find it on the bland side because it doesn't have sharp notes the way a lot of fruit, but it's an incredible, interesting fruit. Great, great fruit preserves, beautiful color. It's a great plant. So there, we're, we're also then become reliant on, you know, the people that are out there that are food explorers that are going, you know, to different areas um, all over the world and trying and trialing it, testing it. And then when they finally feel like that they have a worthy plant, then they're adding it to their catalog. So there is, there is that aspect that we've come to rely on those people who are out there doing the actual work because um, that's important. And, and sometimes you can run across a local nursery that just happens to have, they don't even know what they are, but they just happen to have five pawpaw trees and that's all they'll get. And, you know, and, and then like, hurrah, wow, that's great. My local place. But more often than not, uh, um, wouldn't you say yeah. it is, um, and, that's, and, and that's, we're hoping that changes. And that's why frankly. we started propagating our own yeah, stuff, because true. when we do landscaping work for other people, they don't have a lot of these things. And mm -hmm. so I've worked on learning how to graph them and propagate them. And, and a lot of them are amenable to being taken. You really realize like things like with apples, the way it is, is the farmer planted an apple tree, kind of liked it, took the seeds, planted a whole bunch of apples in his field. 80% of them would be bad 
inferior apples, but some of them would be interesting, unusual flavored. So it becomes Johnson's variety or Smithson's variety. And, and apples are so unstable genetically. That's why there's 30,000 cultivars because every, every farmer who had, a, who had plot of land and free area to plant did that. And that's why all the cultural heritage of plants became, you know, Granny Smith and all of these things are from people doing that. And so you never it's know. It's so important for that reason to plant from seed. You don't necessarily yeah. know what you're going to get. Right. And yeah. Despite the variety, you know, you might have a lot of hits or misses, more misses than others. Um, but if you've got animals, they'll eat the ones that aren't that great, which I've always found planting for uh, animals. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bring in the yes. pigs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes, and chickens too. So yeah. for those who can only manage small livestock, we only ha- we've always had chickens. Chickens are they don't care. They'll eat anything. Pretty <laughs> 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 Well, so that leads me to one thing that I would be remiss not to ask is with all of this experimentation, let's hear some of the stories about the ones that didn't work out because inevitably there are some of those as well. Uh uh, Shapova. I think Shapova is great because it has a lineage that goes back hundreds of years. It's an intersessional hybrid between um, two unrelated species, a pear and a mountain ash. And you read all these accounts about how it's this subtle thing. And after waiting 12, well, I think 12 the initial years, fruit was 12. We years, got one yeah. or two and we chewed on it and spit it out and said, that's disgusting. Right. And then That's a true. year later, we got the That's fruit true. and it was better. Maybe we ate it when it was correctly ripe and we liked it. It was good, but it, it only put a, produces two or three Shapova a year. For us, yeah. For us. And then two years later, we had, a, you know, maybe half a dozen pieces. And I will say that they were improving in flavor and they actually had the perfume quality that I had read about. This, so there is something I find that also with honeyberry, um, Lanacera Carulia. Cerulea. Yeah, Julia. I better look at the book. But um, with honeyberry too, the, which is a great cold, hearty, low maintenance um, fruiting bush, you know, the first couple of years that the, it fruited for us and it fruited fairly quickly. So it wasn't like the Shapova where we waited 12 years um, it fruited probably within the first three years. We started eating the fruit. We're like, wow, okay. Well, this because again, what we had read about it was that it tastes like blueberry. And it doesn't necessarily taste like blueberry. And it doesn't necessarily even look like blueberry. But I understand that from, a, I get it, from a marketing approach, we as humans need to know what something, the relationship to something to something else is or else we're hesitant to try something new so if we plug it as like this is relates to blueberries and that it has a similar taste um maybe that's a selling point so the first couple of years i was kind of like okay well we'll keep it obviously and we'll just see what it does but i'm not really not sold yet and last year for the first time and i think our you know plant is at least what six seven years yeah, old now yeah, yeah the fruit was delicious and I, so i do think that as trees um i mean i haven't read anything about it i'm sure someone's written about this but as trees mature um what they get from the soil 
and their environmental component of for being in a place if they're nurtured, um, the fruit was actually really good. And I think that's we're seeing that with the Shapova over time. So it's that time is like one of those things I, I always keep talking about because it's the one elusive thing that you can't buy, but that's what we need in order to really understand how plants are, what they need from us. And then hopefully if we're responsive, the end result is getting something that's tasty. Yeah, there are exceptions. The, sure. the single most disgusting fruit I have ever had now goes to a mountain ash. Um, that's why have, it's not in our book. <laughs> Rowan, mountain ash. We, I, it's very important in Northern Europe uh, as a grown crop. And I've let it bled, kind of, you know, kind of ferment a little. And uh, I, that's the most disgusting fruit I have ever had. <laughs> I always say, if you like apples that have gone to rancid vinegar flavor, you will like that. That That's the fruit tree you should plant. But I know people use we, it. We get corrected all the time. I've getting notes from people saying, it's oh, so good. It's yeah, so, what are you yeah. talking about? Maybe you need to freeze the fruit or maybe you need to try this. And um, it's been disgusting every way yeah. we've tried it. But, but, but it's important. Literally, yeah. All over Northern Europe is yeah. used as an important cooking crop and for brewing alcohol. And, and we stuff, do have the right cultivar. Yeah, we so, have improved, we have yeah. the improved mountain right, ash. We right. have the one that, that you should get. Right. We have a Russian one and a Ukrainian one, and they're getting along very well. They're growing next to each other. <laughs> Thank and the, God. The, the fruits, disgusting. I don't know to, like, again, to wrap it back to your very specific question. I don't know if we've had major failure oh, oh, have, have oh, we have, am yes, i well, i'm yeah, glossing yeah, over you're, you're okay glossing i'm glossing over, over. Prunus. oh yeah, yeah. i love yes, european plums true. i uh european plum trees do not like it here yeah. they get they die of diseases and i started out with about 20 because mm -hmm. of the plum tree uh, the, the, the plum tree book i mentioned earlier I put all these 19th century and 18th century cultivars and slowly they're dying. Why? And I think it's because of, of wild cherry trees in our woods. Our woods are filled with wild cherry trees and that they're very important. They feed the birds, they feed wildlife. They're very important ecologically, but unfortunately wild cherry trees have hundreds of pests, literally. And the difference between a plum and a peach and a wild cherry tree is a few chromosomes. It's, yeah. it's the same tree. So if you plant near wild cherry trees, pests are gonna come knocking on your door just a matter of time. And I've done everything. I planted them in 12 hours sun, optimal sun. I put them on sloped, sloped landscapes so they're well-drained and they still, they, you can just see they're just slowly dying away except for one or two of them. And in, that's why in the book, the, really the only, we mentioned two prunus, the one for in the plum realm is the beach plum, Maritimia. Um, Which so, is just and, and it's native, just like our, our native, the wild um, cherry trees that Scott's mentioning. Whereas most of the other prunus that we brought in were either from Europe or if we're talking peaches from China, you know, in terms of lineage. And the, and the reason I think that that does well while beach plums do well and the other ones the other ones are like coddled school kids from a private university and a beach plum is like a thug in a leather jacket in an alley you you can almost drive a car over it and not kill it it just has a toughness and a resiliency it just doesn't seem to mind yeah. as long as it's in full sun and well drained right 
and it gets wonderful tiny little wild plums that taste like um to me conquered conquered grapes and plum kind of mixed it has a berry plum flavor great i mean if you think about prunus maritimia and where it's found in its native environment it's exposed to wind it's exposed to sea salt from the ocean it's in sand which has no nutrient i mean like what right so like okay that's that's you know that's fine here the other prunus that we mentioned in the book that we're actually uh, you know i was head over heels with yeah i still kind of am but um, we're now watching it. So we have some reservations about it. I, I believe we made a note of that in the book is um, uh, uh, Nanking, Nanking Cherry. Prunus tomentosum. Uh, and that- A great wild, wild small cherry bush, really great, beautiful fruit. flowers. And it's done, it thrived for years. And then about three years ago, it started getting a disease problem, a brand new one mm-hmm. with a lot of people, not just us, right. where branches start to die and all the foliage falls off and we don't know. Right. Before that, it produced these delicious, tiny little wild cherries without any problems whatsoever. And just and a gorgeous good. plant. So last year we had some fruit after I trying some things to see if I can you know so we'll see that right. i glossed over all the pie cherry trees all <laughs> yeah, the sour they, cherry they trees yeah, all the all peach they... trees you're right i had nectarines we had plum cots uh, i mean just, apricots yeah, although we're still wrong. growing apricots um yes and i still have a couple peach trees because you know we're trying, uh, we're trying. i'm testing but we I'm, fight for yes, that yes yes i, yes. I chat <laughs> what i mean fight is and that's why i don't recommend people plant them people aren't going to do what we do you're not going to pick off the mummies most people like mummies off a tree i got to do what and i'm like not only the old fruit that never you know that got disease but you need to the pedicle the the little stem that the peduncle, excuse me, I think that's the right yeah, term. Yeah. That has to come off too. Well, that drives people bananas. Like the thought of doing that is just like, what? Um, and so most people are like, you know what? I'll deal with the peach tree. I'll pick the fruit before it all goes to brown rot. And then they bring it in the house and you have a little bit of brown rot and you know, everyone we're, we're cutting around it and making do. So, you know, there is a certain amount of, um, imperfection which is fine and and that is just part of gardening really i mean we're not going to spray we're not going to get beautiful yeah. perfect peaches yeah but you'll get a handful of them that birds have nibbled on and they're a little pretty tasty. Up and you can use yeah. them for making cobbler and stuff but yeah so. you're right i just glossed over yes. all those failures <laughs> yes. didn't i like yes. i <laughs> she did gloss over i did failures. big gloss <laughs> No, that's good, but it, it's, it's important for people to know that, right? Uh, yeah, you're right. That, yeah. that it isn't 100%. all just put them in the ground and it's smooth sailing after that. It's good to put out those realistic expectations. And, and for that reason, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who are really excited about planting more perennial fruit and nut varieties, but perhaps they're working with a very small land base, right? Yeah. Um, and they may not have a whole lot of time to try and get fruit and nuts off of them. Some of these take, you know, over a decade to mature. What would you recommend as sort of quick wins for people to try in small spaces that fruit fairly quickly that can build their confidence so that they can try something a little more? That's a great ba- question. Berry bushes. Yeah. Berry bushes yeah. produce fruit fairly quick. Mm-hmm. Currants and gooseberries produce fruit quick. Uh, it, blackberries, if you don't like thorny blackberries, there's thornless varieties that Delicious. are great. 
and they can be cropped and cut and pinned against a fence to get to keep them out of your way. But, um, I, I, we love um, Asian pears have been really productive you, yeah. because you need two for, pro, for, for pollination. You can get a tree that has a multi-graft of two or three varieties on it. So one tree will cross-pollinate itself and then the, the, the pears will ripe at different periods. Asian pears have, for us have been very disease resistant as opposed to Asian pears, which kind of get hit by- European things. pears. European pears, pears excuse yeah. me. Um, so the uh, Asian pears are great. Uh, choice. Yeah. Um, Very where, easy. What else? Another easy. Um, I love quince. Quince is one of my favorite. That's a good small tree. Um, we are affected by a cedar, cedar um, rust problems. So I always lose some of them, but by organically picking, just picking them off and getting rid of them and not, you don't put cedar rust in your compost. You put it in garbage or burn it or whatever. And so sometimes I have bountiful crops and sometimes I'll lose a few, but that's that's another great self-fertile single tree. Um, uh, Gumi, Gumi's a good yeah, moderate size. Alleganus multiflora, very um, low maintenance, easy. It fixes the soil. It's not for everyone. That's the thing, right? So it's the, kind the, of a tart. The, um, I love it. It tastes like sour cherry. So that when I was no longer able to successfully grow sour cherry trees here, this was a very good substitute. But they're small, and the seed is, even though it's edible, it's it's large. So um, I mean, kids seem to love it and stand in front of the bush that produces thousands upon thousands of um, fruit. And it's very fragrant. And what I tell people is even if you don't care for the fruit, you're feeding wildlife because birds absolutely adore it. Another really great um, plant for a small garden would be um, cornice moss, which is cornelian dogwoods. They're, they should be Wonderful. flowering here in the Hudson Valley in the next week or two. The buds are just ready to pop. So really beautiful early yellow flowers that are... Um, you know, much more beautiful than forsythia. And then also if you have more, you need more than one um, wonderful plant sweet, for cross-pollination. And then it produces these sweet sour cherries really in yeah. late August, which um, I love and I make a jam or a sauce, super easy. So there are a bunch in the book that I, we're hoping to inspire people to, you know, even if they have just a small garden to have some one plant either in the front or the back and just start off slowly. That's what we tell people anyway, start off slowly, you know, um, maybe one or two plants and, and then you can keep increasing because what happens is we become plant addicts, don't we? <laughs> right? I'm sure you know about that. Yes. And so you can't just stop at one and then you done all this great research you picked out your two plants you're looking at the catalog or you're in the store and then something catches your eye you just throw it in the cart right away and just hope for the best so like that's cool too because you know gardening is really it I mean we don't it's it, it's science it's a science experiment and I think yeah. if you treat it with that kind of play and joy it's kind of fun seeing you know your successes and misses well, I think the next step for all of us plant addicts is going into actual propagation and sourcing of so many different varieties. 
and you give really great propagation tips for each of the plants in this book. Uh, what have been some of the ones that you have played around with as a default and what are some of the ones that are more finicky and require some technical knowledge in order to, to propagate? Uh, most things that grow on bushes are very easy. Uh, like gooseberries and currants are effortless. All you do is take a cutting in late fall, early winter and put it in soil in a shade spot and strip all the leaves off it, except the top two and put all the buds below the ground because when below the, the soil. Yeah, when the buds crack open, they hit soil and as a survival mechanism, they convert from making leaves to making roots and form root systems. All the commercial gooseberries and currants are done that way. They're, almost anyone could do it. Or you can do it the lazy way. You can bend branches down to the ground That's and put, my way. <laughs> put soil over them. I always say put a little bit of glow tape on that so you don't mow over it with a mower and kill it because you, you've forgotten. If you leave a plant like that for a year or two, it, sometimes they develop gigantic root systems. And that's a real easy way to do it. That's, Almost anyone can do that. I would say also for vines, that's, that's my go-to way, the lazy girl way. So, you know, with Shizandra or Arctic Kiwi, it's, they're very easy because they, they are aggressive or rampant or, you know, just really good growers yeah. in your environment that it's easy to tuck them and layer them. Um, and, and really that's effortless. And then with other things, it's grafting you to get to get like a to get like a, a gauge plum. You have to graft the gauge plum onto grafting or che. Stock or che. You have to yeah. che has to be grafted too. And, and you know, and if you if you use a che seedling, it'll produce kind of an unruly plant that suckers with thorns and stuff. So grafting that produces a clean, even sharp single trunk tree that's easy to, to manage. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So. It really varies species to species. Now, these are also plants that are hard to go and find at your local nursery or sometimes even online. What would you recommend for people who are struggling to find these or who want to experiment with other varieties as well, depending on the growing zone that they're in? How do you go about finding them? Good mail orders in the United States, there's a bunch of, of, of thing places that just specialize in fruit trees. And Europe has a lot of really famous nurseries. United Kingdom has great um, grafting. There are nurseries that are two, like 150 years old where people have been grafting, multi-generations multi in one family have been grafting trees and they're kind of famous for it. And we're often asked like, where do you get your, your, your plant material? And the truth is, is Everywhere. that we spread the love, like we've gotten it from lots of places. And so we did put that in our index in the book to give people, um, and I think what's happened because of COVID and people staying home, at least in the United States, and especially in the Northeast, is there's been, it's been wonderful. There's a big boom on gardening. And of course, when you do that general concept of gardening and you, then you make it specific to edible gardening, all of a sudden the 20 mulberry trees that you would normally see at your nursery in the beginning of spring they're gone within a week because you have people who are coming wanting to put a tree in. Oh, okay, let's try this. Let's try that. So over the last two years, thing, plants that we've been, I want to call pushing for people to kind of start to plant and explore and try out, they're hard to find. And, you know, if you think about something, a good example Scott likes to give is a pawpaw. 
those take a long time to mature. So there's only ever going to be a certain amount of those trees that are ready for sale at any particular point in time. So I just even went on line, I don't remember the nursery, but their stock was not ready until fall or winter of 2023. So like even wanting to find stuff now, it's kind of just because of all of this interest, which is fabulous, but it does make for challenges for people who want to expand um, their gardens. Um, I also, we also, because I'm a, I'm a fanatic and I don't know when to say no. I, I've taken like medjool dates, organic. Mm-hmm. If you get organic dates, they haven't been irradiated to stop them. So you can take the seeds and start. So I have medjool date palms started. Again, I would never realistically be able to grow those out, but I'm interested in them. And you can take a lot of subtropical things, especially bushes. That's why our next book is going to have subtropical bushes. I mean, people are already doing that with turmeric or ginger. You could do it with your garlic, your potato, you know, it's like organic produce and start baby plants from them. But with trees and what you're talking about, I mean, there's not a lot. And maybe with this book in the next five to 10 years, I mean, I don't want to give that much importance to it, but you know, we didn't find, I don't know about you, but in our research, there wasn't really a compendium, is that the right word? Compendium. Compendium of like, of all of these types of plants in one place. So maybe this will show that there is a market for these types of trees um, for nurseries when they start getting the demand. Other than that, I mean, if you live local to us, we do a plant sale as a fundraiser in May and Scott has propagations of small plants, but yeah, it's a bit of a challenge. Yeah. I'm hoping- if you're Sorry, going go to ahead. order rare fruit trees, get them in the middle of winter when no one's ordering them. Oh, you just gave away our secret. <laughs> Don't wait until <laughs> spring because that's when everyone has ordered it. Get them in the middle of winter before everybody orders. Or maybe we just need young, or it doesn't have to be young, but new farmers who want to farm tree crops and start focusing. That's one of our things we talked. There you are. We <laughs> talked with the, um, a young person here two years ago who came and bought a lot of shizandra vine from us. It's an important crop. It's used medicinally. It's sold in a lot of health food. Well, not a lot of health food stores, but I believe that there would be a market if people knew you can get an American grown Shisandra berry. But yeah, we need people like you definitely growing (laughs) nut trees and fruiting trees and propagating them and starting. No, seriously, it's, it's a really important thing because as we talked about a little bit earlier, our tendency, at least in America, I think it's true all over the place, but is to like keep condensing down to have, you know, four or five known cultivars. And that's it, if we're even lucky, right? I think we need to expand. It's all about diversity. We can't say it enough. Yeah, I would say that the majority of the human race lives in cities. If everybody who has a lawn puts in small growing beds, and grows their own vegetables. What that will do to climate change in terms mm-hmm. of carbon and, and, and it c- can be enormous. I'm not talking about people going in and having to go crazy and do giant orchards, but people growing a, a, a portion of their own food, you can mm-hmm. actually do a, a major yeah. amount of ecological good. It's a great thing. Yeah, and that's really what I'm hoping to connect with. And hopefully I'll as well find the growing market of people who are interested in finding greater variety 
and things that do well specifically in their area that don't come with the same amount of like pest pressure and maintenance that the babied and hybridized cultivars do. And I think that hopefully with help of things like this book and maybe easier access with other nurseries in their area, this will be a lot easier for people to uh, start into and realize whether they like it, if this is something that they want to continue to pursue, because I have a feeling that a lot more people are going to get into this once they take those initial steps like you were talking about. And so with that said, uh, how can listeners find this book, learn more about the different options for growing fruit and nut trees in cold climates and learn more about your Arboretum and Botanical Garden as well? Um, well, our book is now currently available at all fine bookstores. And if it's not <laughs> at your fine bookstore, you need to ask them and they, I'm sure they'll get it. It's also available from our wonderful um, publishers, Chelsea Green Publishing House. If you're local to us in the Hudson Valley, we actually have copies of the book that we're happy to sign for you and you can get it directly to us, which works as a fundraiser for the Arboretum. You can find out more information about us and what we're doing through our website, which is hortusgardens.org. You people can sign up to our newsletter because we're constantly, well, I shouldn't say constantly, but we have been giving a lot of talks lately and um, we open our garden starting Mother's Day approximately to uh, Halloween. And what else am I missing uh, The here? book is being yes, distributed in the United Kingdom also yes, by Chelsea Green. May 5th, I think, is or around that beginning of May. And um, Amazon has the book too and barnesandnoble.com. And, mm -hmm. and then the what's the Word, European? Word, Wordry. Wordry is also mm -hmm. distributing it. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And Super. then if people were to go and do social media, we have a presence on Instagram, a small one, but we're there and I'm constantly talking about the book and there's links to buy it. So lots of ways. Amazing. Well, I'll be sure to put all of those links on the show notes for the episode on the website. And Allison and Scott, thank you so much for making time. It was a real pleasure to talk with you today. Likewise. To you. Yeah. Yeah. I well, can't wait to come visit your fruit and nut farm. Oh, give me a year or two, and I would love to have you over and get all of your ideas and your input as well. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks once again to Allison and Scott. I'll be posting all of the links that they mentioned on the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all the previous episodes from the last five seasons. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations that are happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. So if you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or to just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come to join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. Now, in the next episode in this series on tree planting and agroforestry, I'm gonna be speaking with Danny Baker the author of the new book, The Home Scale Forest Garden. Her incredible story starts only after she retired. Before then, she had almost no gardening experience. And in just a few short years, she's now tending over an acre of diverse fruit and nut trees and perennial crops. It's the perfect follow-up for today's episode on cold hardy trees because Danny lives in an even colder zone than Allison and Scott. So be sure to subscribe to this show and to leave a review wherever you stream your podcast from so you don't miss an episode. 
And that's our show for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future. And I'll be right by your side along the way.